Programming Notes episodes, the general concept is that you can get an extended summary of episodes if you decide that you'd rather have that than listen to the episodes themselves, as well as some notes about what's going on in the community or how you can be helpful and useful in the community. Programming Notes for the week of August 21st, 2022. I know I can be grumpy on these programming notes, so I'm going to try and start them more with something I'm grateful for each time too. So I'm grateful for some great content that's been tidying me over right now. That's been uh, kind of helping me take some mind, uh, my mind off of things. So first would be uh, Only Murders in the Building, which is a great show that stars uh, Selena Gomez and uh, Steve Martin and Martin Short. Um, it's just a fun show. And the other is a Dungeons and Dragons podcast called Join the Party. Explicit warnings on both if you want to check them out, but they're just kind of fun and they're a great uh, little way to relax. So on to the community stuff. I want to shout out the people who are stepping up regularly, especially Eric Broda, Omar Kawaja, and Samia Rahman. So Eric is stepping up with awesome content and leading some, some community discussions and doing a lot of great things. Check the meetup group if you want more info about kind of those communities, you know, kind of where everybody just gets together and discusses a topic. And Omar and Samia are helping me to organize our first data mesh day. It's going to be around life sciences, pharma, and healthcare. Um, if you want to get involved in anything community related, please do. If you all try to come through just me, I become a bottleneck. So let's figure out how we decentralize community management. Sound good to people? Okay. So on Monday, we're going to have episode 116, a startup's journey towards decentralizing data, iterables, analytics, evolution, an interview with Rhea Singh. So I really enjoyed this conversation because it's such a different one relative to most of the podcast. It's an organization that is finding the power of a centralized data team up until the scale hits them up until the complexity uh, that Data Mesh is trying to address hits them. As a startup, they aren't yet at that scale where centralization is the bottleneck. It's far too early for them to really consider doing Data Mesh. So they are setting themselves up well with training their domains to care about and have conceptual ownership of their data. But the centralized team still does a lot or most of the data specific work of managing the pipelines and doing the data modeling and things like that. Again, if centralization isn't your bottleneck, you don't have to decentralize, right? Really think about that return on investment. Data mesh doesn't have to be for everyone. On Tuesday, it's episode 117, Data Mesh and Fight Club. How should we discuss data mesh internally? Mesh Musings 27. If you've listened to a fair number of episodes, you'll have heard me mention unicorn parts. This is part of that whole concept. Don't want to get into it too much right now. But should we adapt the Fight Club rules of the first and second rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club? Should we have that same thing about data mesh when we're talking about speaking with teams outside of the data teams? More and more people on the podcast that I've been interviewing seem to be coming to the conclusion that I have that the answer is yes. Don't mention that it's specifically data mesh. It doesn't really matter to them. Break it, break down into what changes for them, both what are the new benefits and the new ways of working. It's still an open question, of course, but I think 
when you start to talk about data mesh, you immediately jump into the four pillars and you immediately jump into this big discussion instead of like, let's break it down into small incremental bits of here's what we're doing and here's what's changing. On Wednesday, it's episode 118. This is Jamax Corner number one. Is data mesh right for you? The inaugural episode of Jamax Corner, where I interview you know the woman who started it all on on some specific questions around data mesh. We started um, for the first couple, the first three, around a few basic questions that cut to the heart of data mesh. So this one specifically is: Is data mesh even right for you? How can you measure and think about if data mesh is right for you? Because it's not right for everyone, right? <laughs> we heard that in episode 116 from Monday. So on Friday, it's episode 119, Cautionary Learnings from a Startup Doing Data Mesh, Orpheum's Journey to Decentralized Data Success, which is an interview with Argiris Argiriu and Konstantinos Siatrilis. This one, I think, is super important, especially for you smaller companies out there, right? People that are working with, with startups. I think it pairs well, just happened with the timing, but it pairs really well with uh, Rhea Singh's episode from Monday. Orpheum took on a lot of pain and tried to go too far down the path of data mesh and found that they were built, having to build far too much of this stuff for themselves. And there wasn't really any blueprints out there of, of what other people had done. Trying to get that with uh, all the, the work that I'm doing. But I think it's, it's important to know that right now we're still very, very bleeding edge and you're going to have to build a lot of things your own. There's not a lot of tooling out there that's already built for this. And there's not a lot of even blueprints around how other people have done it, right? You shouldn't copy paste, but there's not even that good of stories around what people have done. So they got to what seems like a really good point, but it was still very painful. Any data mesh journey is going to have pain, obviously. Change is pain, and this is a big change. But this is an honest portrayal of some of the challenges faced, right? I don't want this podcast to only be the success stories. I want people to be able to share, we really struggled with X or Y or Z. People then know that they're going to struggle, but also that we're not lying. We're not trying to sell the concept of data mesh instead of help people actually implement it. Oh, and they, they had this thing, um, their data doctor concept, I think is really interesting and, and that a lot of people should look at it because I think it's a really interesting way to think about um, centralized information sharing around how to do data and data best practices without having somebody who's doing the work who becomes a bottleneck. So now on to the interview episode summaries. Extended summary for episode 116, a startup's early journey towards decentralizing data, iterables, analytics, evolution, an interview with Rhea Singh. So in this episode, I interviewed Rhea, who is the business insights manager at Iterable. While Iterable is too early in its life to fully look to implement data mesh, they're taking some major inspirations from data mesh in how to enable domains to appropriately share data with each other per RIA. When RIA joined, they were under 100 people and had a very fractured one-off analytics approach built on a lot of disparate Excel spreadsheets. It was very hard to make data-driven decisions, 
even within many of the domains themselves, but especially on cross-domain questions, which are often the most crucial questions to companies. Each domain had a relatively high data maturity, enough so that the centralized BI slash data team thought they could they could and should still own at least some of the responsibilities for sharing their data. But Perea, to move from a fractured environment, they needed to at least consolidate sharing information into a single place or, or kind of tool and to start to standardize how information might be shared and combined or integrated across domains. This is actually a pretty common pattern for a lot of organizations that were in kind of that disparate, uh, fractured environment that you have to centralize before you can really decentralize and federate. Uh, Juanes Rosiers at DPG Media had talked about that's kind of what they had to do first was they had to centralize and get good at a lot of practices before they could decentralize. So an example Rhea gave was how the product team data was stored in such a different way than the sales and marketing information, but the sales and marketing departments both wanted to consume metrics from how customers and prospects were using, you know, the the different software as a service offerings. But again, integration across domains was extremely hard to do. It was very ad hoc. It was very for this specific analysis. It wasn't something that was kind of continual and ongoing. They also needed a standardized ownership model across domains. What would the domains own and what would the BI or data team own, right? It's important to have kind of that understanding so it's not really uh, so much chaos or anything. So what was the driving factor specifically to push iterable out of essentially the dreaded spreadsheet hell? Rhea mentioned that the executives were not able to easily and repeatably, reliably get answers to their questions in a timely manner. Many crucial exec level questions are not domain specific and require data from multiple domains. And most exec questions aren't a single point in time question. You know, what were our sales yesterday? (laughs) No, they want to look at that on a daily basis. So you need to set up reliable processes to support answering those questions now and into the future. So exec pain at not being able to quickly make decisions backed by data, especially data they could trust, meant there needed to be a change. Hence why they started to look into data mesh and why they started to kind of consolidate before potentially decentralizing later on. Rhea gave a few specific examples of big questions they couldn't answer in the fractured setup. Like number one, what makes a good target prospect? You need to combine sales and marketing data about company type, size, et cetera, with purchase history and combine that with the product usage data to see what types of companies were actually using which features and then combining in the renewal rate and how much each customer expanded and all sorts of different things. It could also give them an ability to target pitches based on, again, which features were used by which type of companies. You can get pretty specific with this. And you can, you know, get overly specific, but you can really do some some interesting campaign targeting, or you can put some things in front of sales folks to make it easy for them to uh, potentially have a more fruitful conversation. Another one was, what is the actual return on investment or ROI on marketing spend? You know, myself coming from an FP&A background, I agree, 
this is an insanely difficult question without really good data. And even then it's, it's very difficult, but you know, it's almost impossible. It's notoriously difficult without really clean data. Another good example of a question was what features or business programs should we kind of shut down or reduce investment in? To cost optimize, you need clean data on what is actually happening with the business and, and the product down to quite granular levels. So you aren't making crucial decisions based on gut where you might be killing the golden goose. Peria, one very important outcome of the work to combine data across domains, identifying additional gaps in their data and analytics. Were they collecting the information to answer these new questions? If the domain had the information, could they share it? You know, once basic questions were more or less answered, again, they could see these gaps. They could see where they could do better on what information they collected and shared to drive deeper, high-value insights, right? They could really see, oh, (laughs) we've started to answer the basic questions. Where are other kind of glaring places where we need to (laughs) be able to answer questions? When starting to build out the cohesive company-wide data platform, Rhea and team looked at a number of tools. She said they made a, a few good choices and a few things that she would do differently. They focused a bit too much on trying to provide a really simple UI UX at the beginning instead of just getting data sharing and analyzing capabilities in people's hands and then working to improve from there. They eventually saw a really big value in getting people doing that initial exploratory work quickly, reducing the time to market of people being able to use even kind of base level features of the platform was very valuable. Right. So this was, again, the quicker you can get people to getting some information in front of them, the better, as long as they understand what they're getting. They also went with something that made ETL far harder to manage than it should have been in in Rhea's view. Sometimes those more expensive offerings like a Fivetran, which she mentioned, will have a much better return on investment. Ask yourself How much of your time will be spent managing a system instead of value-add work? And if that would be better spent on buying a tool. As Doron Perot mentioned in her episode, it's rarely a super easy choice, but too often people opt to try to roll their own or go for the really low-cost thing and and build out on top of it when it's more valuable to focus on higher value-add work. So really think about that return on investment when building out your platform. Uh, so specifically at Iterable, they are now using Snowflake, Fivetran, Looker, and DBT. So Iterable saw a lot of value again from that initial exploratory work between teams driving insights. Once they found a good use case, the teams came to Ria and the centralized data team to build out the data models that could easily com- that could easily combine that data between the domains that would allow for high quality trustable data in a format that was easy to use and leverage. Essentially, once there was a clear use case, the central data team took over ownership to ensure and maintain quality. As seen in many previous interviews, the central ownership model scales until it doesn't. Right now for iterable, centralized ownership of what might be considered consumer-aligned data sets in data mesh, that makes sense for them. 
data mesh as Jamak has envisioned it, and as we're seeing a lot of people move to implement it, is not for all companies. And a hybrid ownership model like Iterable is using can scale quite well for organizations with not that many domains or not that complex of domains. It's a great first foray into decentralizing a few things as they look to potentially do data mesh in the long run. So kind of their V0.1 to 1.0 of the data platform at Iterable was Snowflake plus Stitch plus Looker, and Stitch was for their ETL. Then the version 2.0 was kind of what I mentioned earlier of Snowflake, Fivetran, Looker, and DBT. Rhea and team are starting to work on the version 3.0 of their data platform to support some initial data science and machine learning use cases. What they found is far too much of the central data team's time is spent on manual tasks. So they will be focusing on these new ML use cases, as well as just in general, building in more automation and optimization. This is something that comes up in a lot of data mesh implementations as well, that a big part of the focus initially is on what features can we add? What can we do? And (laughs) where they find more and more value is in these optimizations and automation. A few interesting things from Iterable's approach. Number one, starting with exploratory analysis first, they could discover low-hanging fruit insights while working to elevate the data set to production quality. Some things were just obvious in the data even before it was you know, made high quality. Getting to an early initial consumable form of data and then iterating towards higher quality drove value sooner. Number two, the domains are constantly in communication with weekly check-ins. This gives them scheduled time to keep each other informed. Easier to do in a company with four to five domains, but it means fewer surprises and more high-value collaboration. I think this is something a lot more organizations should start to look to do is (laughs) not just if you see something, say something, but like let's set up time where we're going to chat And it may be that we don't have anything super, super scheduled, but you start to kind of exchange some content context and it's kind of that water cooler talk. And uh, number three and of kind of some interesting things from their approach was something that has worked well for Rhea's team is constantly keeping stakeholders updated as work around data progresses by keeping people in the loop. There is a tighter feedback cycle if expectations aren't aligned or diverge, meaning far less chance of wasted work. Uh, Jen Tedrow talked about this as well as a good tool for driving buy-in because then people can see why you're making the decisions you are instead of they don't, you know, they ask you a question, you go off and you come back with a single answer. It's a bit like um, the uh, Douglas Adams book. Uh, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but where they ask, you know, what's the, or the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. What is the uh, answer to the question? What is the meaning of life and everything? And it's 42, right? Like, what is the question? What is the answer to the big question? And the the big computer says 42, because you're not asking the right question, right? (laughs) You weren't keeping each other in the loop as to what would be a good uh, answer to that. So Rhea wrapped up by mentioning how crucial high context conversations really are to making your data strategy work, no matter your data management approach. 
if the domains were just trying to drive their own data, the overall company would be flying blind. So find good ways to keep each other informed and exchanging context. Extended summary for episode 119, cautionary learnings from a startup doing data mesh, Orpheum's journey to decentralized data success, an interview with Argyros Argyro and Konstantinos Siaterlis. So in this episode, I interviewed Argyros, who's the head of data, and Konstantinos, or Kostas, as I'll call him throughout this, uh, the director of big data at Orpheum. There's a ton of useful information on anti-patterns, what's going well, advice, all of that in this episode. It is very useful when thinking about maybe even a case study, especially when you think about um, how far should startups really go when thinking about data mesh. I think there's a lot here to learn. So from here forward in this summary, I will mostly refer to everything said as though it was by both Argyros and, and Kostas rather than trying to specifically call out who said which part in most cases, because that that just becomes very, very complex and, and confusing. So about two and a half years ago, when Argyros joined the company, Orpheum, which is a growing startup in the music industry uh, royalty business, which has about 250 people, was really starting to see a big uptick in data requirements to serve their customers and offer new features and capabilities. They had three to four people doing the data engineering and data science work and another centralized kind of BI team. But the need for more advanced ML and AI was becoming clear. The centralized data capabilities were becoming a bottleneck. So either they'd need to significantly scale their number of people in the centralized data functions or look to decentralize in some way. They decided to try data mesh because they were feeling the exact challenges Jmac laid out so clearly laid out in our articles. For Costas, he was really bought in from the beginning to data mesh because of the self-serve aspect. Pretty much all of the data in the company for analytics was flowing through him and his small team, you know, that three to four person team. And that was understandably draining and difficult and, you know, was a bottleneck. And, uh, you know, data mesh, even though it's, it's so much more of a cultural approach than a technical one. So, even though as somebody who's very interested in the technology, it was like, hey, we need a new way of working. And he said, you know, kind of a quote from him, I will build something interesting either way. <laughs> so the loss of certain data engineering tasks meant he could focus on building the platform, which was just as or more interesting anyway. And I think you can you can get some buy-in from data engineering folks that way too. This is a really interesting challenge to approach. At first, for Argyros and Kostas, data mesh was definitely a very bumpy road, right? They tried to do data mesh as a side project while keeping up with everything else they were doing. They couldn't justify treating the data mesh implementation as a main focus at the expense of the many things in production. And in a 250-person company, they didn't have the spare headcount <laughs> to, to you know, allocate some folks to it uh, at the expense of everything else. So as they built the first version of the data platform, 
they were having difficulty explaining data mesh to non-data folks. So the team most bought in and willing to try using a data mesh approach was the central data engineering team for some of their own work. Thus, the first version of the platform was quite advanced data tooling for data intensive use cases with the central data team as the main users. As Audin and uh, Gyoran from Navid talked about, that's kind of one of those things where it's a really great platform that does some awesome things, but it's really hard. You know, it worked well for the, the central data team, but once they tried to get other users, it's really hard to get them bought in. The, pl- the platform wasn't really built for people who weren't that highly data literate and with didn't have the intensive use cases. So again, drying, driving that buy-in was very difficult because the platform wasn't built for broad use. On trying to drive buy-in, Argiros and Costas worked to explain what they were doing and what data mesh was to the internal folks. They started from the why, why would this matter? And that got the exec team excited. But when they tried to sell data mesh to the engineering managers and engineers, it fell flat. The non-data folks didn't really understand the nuances of data mesh. And they didn't really need to, in most cases, to participate and benefit from the data mesh implementation. It's very easy to overwhelm people with all the aspects of data mesh instead of what matters. This is why I keep bringing up my unicorn farts principle. Right. Anytime you're going to put data mesh in any documentation that you're going to share to other people inside the company, outside the data team, copy, find, replace data mesh with unicorn farts because you will delete every time you go to write data mesh and obviously every time you've written unicorn farts because you don't want that in documentation. You'll focus on talking to them instead of data mesh is the solution. It's here's what we're actually trying to accomplish and why. Right. Like that's the thing that drives buy in trying to say we're doing data mesh in many of these cases, you know, many of the, the um, recent interviews you've heard, it's driven confusion instead of buy-in, not a good thing to do. So what ended up driving buy-in quite well per Argiros and Costas was seeing the output of treating data like uh, a product in action. There were tangible benefits and people could see what a mesh data product could deliver. They were much happier to move forward in participating in the data mesh implementation once they saw that value, right? Once they saw that a a team had really delivered something great with a a mesh data product. So per Costas and, and, and Argiras, a few of the missteps, so you can avoid doing the same, were... Number one, trying to sell data mesh by the principles and using the phrase, you know, data mesh instead of the why and what changes for who they were talking to. Number two, building the platform to serve the most data intensive use cases owned by data engineers. So it was quite hard and not really suitable for others to use. Number three, trying to get to advanced maturity in all parts of the data mesh implementation upfront, right? Such as they don't have fully automated access control. And they thought that that was something that they really needed to do, but they've gotten it to a place where they can give access relatively easily when it's requested. So it's not a big pain point. So think about what you're actually trying to accomplish and what matters. Number four, thinking that Jamak's articles or book are the blueprint for where you have to be at that early stages, right? 
instead of inspirational goal, multiple years into a data mesh journey, right? So it's kind of three and four are a bit intertwined, but really there's a lot of people who think that they have to be much more mature to start driving value when you can get towards iteration and driving value pretty quickly. Um, If you want to do kind of a really, really deep data mesh implementation, then kind of as Sean uh, Kaiser and Gustavo Drakenberg talked about, that might take six months to really build out. But for teams that want to build out something a lot more quickly, you can start to get to value and iterate more and more towards where you want to go. And number five on some of their missteps was trying to get all teams to move together at the same time with data mesh instead of working team by team or mesh data product by mesh data product. Right, trying to get everybody moving together just <laughs> was a, a big, big undertaking. So what did work for Kostos and, and Argyros at Orpheum in their data mesh journey? Again, number one, showing people the results and the value the approach could deliver for a use case. And then number two, not hiring new people into roles. When they looked at the additional workload with good support and upskilling and partnering, the domains could handle it as they were. And per kind of my uh, digging into this, this tends to be the case in smaller companies with smaller domains doing decentralized data. The product managers really already know a lot about what's going on on the data. And so you don't need necessarily a separate data product owner. And they, they kind of made some missteps around trying to hire too much into that. Um, number three, focusing on the why. Why does this matter? If we get this right, what, what will that get us? What will be the output, right? That's a good thing that is working for them. And number four, using data mesh as an enabler to change people's hearts and minds about owning and using data. It's now a core part of the team's responsibilities to own and share their data, and they are taking it seriously. So what does good look like for Orpheum Orpheum in their data mesh journey right now. Per Argyros and Costas, their teams understand the difference between operational and analytical data now and are starting to manage their analytical data as a product. It has changed the role of data engineering as well. You know, this is what's been good is how people perceive the central data team internally they're now the enabler, not the team that does the work for the other organization or the other domains, right? Their ML and AI teams are able to get quality data reliably so they can build out new use cases relatively quickly. And like I mentioned earlier, they still don't have fully automated access control, but they focused on making it far easier to request and grant access. And that's a good enough point for them at the moment, right? They're at 10 to 15 products, you know, it's hard to say exactly what constitutes a product for them, hence kind of the range that they gave, but with far happier data consumers. So again, those are all what's what's looking good with their, their implementation. Orpheum wasn't actually even doing domain-driven design or DDD on the operational or data side of the house prior to starting on their data mesh journey. And Argyros and Costas think it's totally viable to not be doing DDD at all before starting your data mesh journey. Other guests on episodes more centered on DDD for data have said similar things. 
So they're giving you some permission to move forward. I'm, I'm skeptical of that, but they're the experts. I'm not. <laughs> so Costas and, and Argiras give some insights into how attitudes and understanding relative to data have changed at Orpheum. Previously, someone would want to do some analytical work against the team's data and the product manager would get them some kind of database access, you know, to the data, right? And so they could only access the data as it was stored for the operational system, for the operational applications. There wasn't a clear separation between the operational data and analytical data. So a lot of the evolution was just getting them to understand how their data might be used for analytics and produce and own data to be used for analytics. Far easier said than done, but still achievable. And what also really helped was splitting business and technical analytical data ownership, right? This is something that's come up a lot that you want to split out the business ownership of, of mesh data products from the actual technical. So with all this learning behind them, what are a few bits of advice from Argiras and Costas? Start slower on the technology build out. It's exciting to build cool stuff, but that can wait. What do you need to get to the low hanging fruit value? Start small. Don't try to have all the domains, or if you are not doing DDD yet, you know, whatever you want to call your teams, move all at once. Don't mention, again, another one, don't mention the phrase data mesh to people outside the data team. It typically just generates confusion. Speak to the value of the approach and not the technology or what it changes for the data team. What does it change for them? When working with teams to understand the concept of a mesh data product, it's easy to overcomplicate things per Costos and, and Argiras. For Orpheum, there is a technical definition of a mesh data product and a business one. The business definition is quite simple. It's a product designed like any other software product. It needs to be it needs to be solving a problem for customers, and it is delivered via an API. So really think about what you were in doing and why. And you know, a quote from Argiros was, "Why complicate it more than that?" The data products are also kind of their their concept of it is that they combine create a platform of information for teams to build data-informed applications on top of, you know, new use cases and things like that. Oh, and, and of course, don't forget really good documentation for your mesh data products, of course. Orpheum has really has a really interesting concept that they are using internally called the data doctor. Essentially, people go with their, you know, quote-unquote data symptoms, and the data doctor gives them a, you know, prescription, which is advice on how to address their challenge using best practices around data. It's a low pressure way to have something like a staff data engineer hold office hours to help people with their data challenges to ensure people follow best practices, but also learn how and have the confidence to implement the recommendations themselves. And then the data doctor needs to work with whoever implemented the advice to document the process and put it into a central repository so others can easily follow the same practices if they hit uh, the same or a similar challenge, right? So it's about not having multiple people ask the same frequently asked questions. <laughs> so in wrapping up, uh, Argiro said something about your, your data mesh journey that I think is, um, you know, it's, it's not a unique phrase, but I think it's, it's useful to really think about. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon, right? So when you think about your, your journey, 
don't try to be in too much of a rush. Don't tire yourself out early. Kind of drive to that continuous movement forward. 